the National Archives podcast series, Vanishing for the Vote, Diverse Suffragettes Boycott the 1911 Census, presented by Jill Liddington. This talk was recorded as part of Diversity Week at the National Archives on the 29th of January 2015 at the National Archives queue.
family history reasons or whatever at the 1911 census, but the 1911 census looked very different. It had more detail, more penetrating questions. Why? Because the Liberal government, the Liberal government wanted to ask more detailed questions about families. They wanted to know the number of children born alive to each married woman in each family. They wanted to know how many of those children were still living and how many had died. They wanted to know how many rooms there were, how many people per household, and therefore the sense of um, congestion. So let's have a look at one of these schedules. Um, you can't get much closer than Four Pagoda Avenue Q. I mean, I can't remember, quarter mile away? Um, not far, not far. It wouldn't take long to walk. Uh, not untypical um, middle, possibly slightly upper middle class household. Walls of the head is a retired timber merchant. Can you read his occupation? And he's filled in and signed the, the schedule at the bottom. You can see um, there he is, the bottom right hand corner. Um, he's been married for 27 years. Um, letter of marriage, um, number of children born alive, four, number of children still alive, four, none have died. He's got four daughters who are all still living at home, and we might note none of them have any occupation listed. Quite interesting that, of a single one, and there's one general domestic servant, general servant domestic, um, who's looking after nine rooms, so we can imagine some of the daughters giving her a hand to keep nine nine rooms going, that number of clients. So fairly typical of a professional middle class um, uh, family, no overcrowding here in Kew. Um, and in this talk I do want to focus very much on local suffragettes along this particular reach of the Thames Valley. Um, and we might just um, look at the Edwardian map. I know it's not <coughs> incredibly legible, but everyone can see the Thames. Richmond Bridge down here, up through to uh, Kew, you can see Kew written up there, and then down at the bottom right hand corner and just out of the map is um, Wimbledon Common and um, Putney, and we'll come back to Wimbledon Common as you'll find out later. And I put that map up partly because River Thames helps focus our mind on the diversity of suffragettes who lived along its um, Edges. Down river, we might find uh, living near Lambeth, uh, Muriel Matters. Anyone come across her? Yes, yes. Australian, one of the few Australian suffragettes here. Perhaps one of the things she did most to capture the public imagination was sail in a balloon, well, airship over London, distributing uh, leaflets to, to totally Westminster below, but the wind blew her a bit off course. <laughs> um, and we find from the 1911 census down river, down towards Lambeth, Battersea, living in strange circumstances as so many um, single independent women were in lodgings. And up river, we go up river to Hampton, Hampton Court, we find, and it's going to be no surprise what example I choose, an Indian princess. Um, and here we have um, Princess Sophia Dilip Singh, who um, I think some of you will have heard of because of the new autobiography that's come out about a week ago, with a lot of publicity. You probably know that Princess Sophia was the daughter of a Maharaja who'd been exiled 
um, in the late 19th century from the Punjab uh, to Britain after the British annexation of the Punjab. Annexation, robbery, you'll make up your own mind. Um, Queen Victoria uh, took quite a shine to uh, this prince, this Maharaja, and he became a bit of a favourite. Um, and Sophia benefited from that. Uh, he was quite a wealthy man, and she inherited wealth. She inherited, inherited considerable wealth. And moreover, she was uh, granted a great and favour house in the grounds of Hampton Court. Here is a photograph of her a little bit later when they were looking for the census, selling a suffragette newspaper. But it, obviously, it is outside the grounds of um, Hampton Court. A little bit earlier, Sophia had gone back to India from her, her, her quite kind of luxurious life in London. She'd gone back to India and she was shocked to be treated like a coolie um, in a racist way by the British who'd rather favoured her when she and her father were in Britain. And she returned back to the UK just as the suffragette movement was kicking off. And she joined Hook, Line and Thinker. And here she is selling a suffragette uh, newspaper. Um, so we'll hear a little bit more about uh, Princess Sophia in a moment. But I think she very nicely evokes um, the sort of aim behind the National Archives Diversity Week. So hers is a compelling and quite exotic uh, picture that we've been looking at. But I think we need to take a step back and to look at the sort of broader picture broader suffrage picture, broader political picture, the historical context of spring 1911. Because, as you know, it was a time of heightened political controversy and contest. Everything was kicking off. Ireland, Ulster, I'll just mention it briefly, the labour movement and industrial unrest, trade unions, and most particularly relevant here, the power battle of the progressives in Asquith's liberal government uh, between them representing the voice of the people, the will of the people, and the inherited uh, House of, uh, members of the, the peers in the House of Lords who were predominantly uh, conservative or Tory. A right royal battle, as we'll see. And then we'll move down to the last uh, three points, and that's going to be our main focus. Conflict over women's suffrage. The vote for women campaigners prioritised the conciliation bill that was coming up to enfranchise not all women, because even men still had, a, had to satisfy the property qualification, but a handful of women, uh, a million or so, who satisfied the property qualification in their own right. Uh, someone like um, Princess Sophia would do, independently uh, wealthy women, women doctors, uh, wealthy widows, wealthy spinsters who own their own houses, etc., etc. They were supporting the conciliation bill, limited though it was. And many suffragettes, as you know, had already gone to prison from October 1905 onwards, so it had been going for quite some time. In prison since summer 1909, hunger striking, refusing prison food. And so from autumn 1909, many of them had endured the horrors of forcible feeding, where, as you know, the chair is tipped back in prison, the uh, ankle 
and wrists are held down by four prison warders. And the prison doctor man would pour down a tube through a funnel into the uh, suffragette prisoner's mouth the sloppy prison food. And the accusation went to the Liberal government. This was political torture and indeed political hypocrisy. How dare the Liberal government condemn the Tsarist Russia for imprisoning and torturing political prisoners when they were doing exactly the same to women in Britain just for asking the vote. So you can see there's quite a lot of high feeling going on around the suffragette <coughs> and votes women by spring 1911. And at the same time, and it's important we bear this in mind, the part, last two lines, Asquith's Liberal government had already begun to offer real, tangible welfare improvements to ordinary people. It had achieved and introduced old age pensions in 1909. Just imagine, for the first time, free money from the post office for elderly people. People couldn't believe it. And that is what the Liberal government had introduced. Um, you had to be over 75, I think it was, and it wasn't very much money, but it was, a, you know, it was something. It was something to alleviate the poverty of old age. And now, Lloyd George, uh, an amazing uh, radical uh, progressive in number 11 as Chancellor Exchequer, Lloyd George was promoting and championing even more ambitious reforms, health reforms, notably his poweringly ambitious National Health and National Insurance Bill. And we all think, oh, national insurance, boring, you've got to pay it. But at the time, 1910-1911, it was still to be fought for, inch by inch, through the corridors of Westminster. He was pushing it through uh, Westminster as far as he could. And this kind of reform to help poor families, families who face poverty and illness, it needed to be based on accurate census information, accurate data about families, and that meant accurate census information. And therefore, as we've seen, there are much more detailed census questions asked for the 1911 census than had ever been before about children, about overcrowding, about childbirth. And so what we're beginning to see is arguments in spring 1911 for and against boycotting the census. What did democracy mean? Did it mean uh, democracy for, you know, democracy for women, whether they had the vote or not? Or was it democracy by, and that women's citizenship demands were really important? You can't provide democracy for people unless they have democracy by them, i.e. the vote. Which takes us back, again fairly broadly, to the suffrage organisation by 1911. And I know many of you will know this. The National Union, led by Mrs. Forsyth, the oldest, the biggest, uh, in London, it was the London Society of Women's Suffrage. It had branches everywhere. Uh, absolutely everywhere, including Richmond, um, which was very active. But I'm not going to say very much about the National Union, important and massive though it was, because it didn't support militancy, and it never it didn't support the uh, invitation to boycott. So we moved to the WSPU, formed, as we know, by Emmeline in 1903, led by her and her uh, daughter Christabel. Uh, it includes the Richmond and Few branches will find, and they've just come out of a 
traumatic experience. Black Friday, anyone heard of it? Yeah. Yep, Black Friday, November 1910, they're taking a, a deputation of leading women, Evelyn Pankhurst, Princess Sophia Singer, isn't it? A deputation to the House of Commons to ask um, Parliament to grant votes to women, and it's met by unparalleled police brutality and a lot of imprisonment. Um, and the WSPU was still dealing with that um, at the beginning of 1911, and only eventually supported the boycott, as we'll hear in a moment. Then the Women's Freedom League, a breakaway from the WSPU and the Pankhurst over the matter of internal democracy. It's important here because uh, both for its um, important propaganda, uh, imaginative propaganda technique, and here's the Women's Freedom League caravan, the first suffrage caravan that goes out into the wild depths of Surrey. It goes to Leatherhead. Yeah. <laughs> Leatherhead turned out, and Guildford tends to be a rather wild place in terms of anti-suffrage rust. Um, so very imaginative propaganda, and also from the Women's Freedom League, ran the plan, the plot, to boycott the census. And then finally, the least known but a newest of the organisations, the Women's Tax Resistance League, formed in 1909 by women willing to uh, resist paying their taxes. They were going to take on Asquith's Liberal government to fund Lloyd George's welfare reforms. The, the new form of income for the government was taxation or increased taxation, income tax, land taxation. And so taxation has become at the heart of the political agenda. So women with money were being asked to pay taxes, but none of them had the vote. And so they began this energetic, defiant tax resistance campaign. No rep taxation without representation, a very old cry from the 17th century. And it suited, down to the ground, financially independent women like Sophia, the princess of Hampton court. And the Women's Tax Resistance League, rather imaginatively, staged resistance spectacles all around London and the home counties, which was their sort of stamping ground. And they turned that most unlikely of, of, of venues, auction rooms, auction houses, into political theatre. Because uh, the diamonds or silver teaspoons would have come up from for auction by a woman from the Tax Resistance League who refused to pay, and her comrades, suffragettes, would come along and bid for them. Meanwhile, holding a demonstration outside, singing inside, getting their banners, and getting into the local paper. They created spectacles in auction rooms where nobody else had. Princess Sophia Blue Sting of Hampton Court, her diamond ring was seized. She wasn't short of diamonds. A diamond ring was seized and on payment, sold at auction, and bought by a taxation league member and duly returned to her. Um, so you can see there's a lot going on there. And even if um, somebody didn't have diamonds, and most women didn't, they might have a few silver teaspoons. And these auctions allow us to see inside um, these Edwardian upper middle class households. A little elegiac picture of Edwardian domestic life, and in those homes, these defiant women who refused to pay their taxes. So it was from the Women's Taxation Resistance League, tactics of civil disobedience, passive resistance, 
and from Charlotte's Epilogue, Women's Freedom League, that the plot to boycott the census in April 1911 first sprang, because they learned, and this is adding insult to injury, that the government was going to ask women, all voteless, going to ask married women and their husbands to record it, intimate personal details of the number of children born alive. So a provocative and daring uh, boycott plan. And most provocative and daring was the Women's Freedom League um, Boycott Manifesto. Can you read any of the headings? Women in the 1911 census refused to supply information. No representation for women, no information for women. Boycott the census. And perhaps we'll go down to obstruct government business. And I quote this in the book. So under the heading obstruct government business, the Women's Freedom League incited its members to oppose, hamper and destroy if possible. Oppose, hamper and destroy if possible the power of an unrepresented government to govern women, refuse to be taxed, boycott the census, refuse all official information until women have won that right, which is their absolute right, the right of a voice and a vote. So, provocative stuff. And it quite quickly provoked opposition, very fierce opposition to it, particularly from within the heart of liberalism. Social policy progressives who supported what Lloyd George was trying to do and who felt they needed, they must have accurate census data upon which to base their future health reforms. And the battle for the census came particularly from the heartlands, liberal heartlands, of places like Manchester, where the scholarly intelligentsia of Manchester University and the um, Manchester Guardian uh, resided. And no one articulated this better than Professor Michael Sadler, University of Manchester, who wrote to the Times on the 14th of February, immediately after this manifesto came out, and said, to boycott the census would be a crime against science, which he means a crime against social science. For upon the completeness of the census returns depends future legislation to better the conditions of all people. To sulk against the census would not be a stroke of statesmanship, but a nursery print of bad temper. And we know who occupies nurseries, childish, childish women. So, Women's Freedom League Manifesto, Sadler's the battle of it in the Times a couple of days later. The arguments went to and fro, flew to and fro. And by March, uh, so a month later, the WSPU, having got over Black Friday, had also joined the boycott plotting, bringing with it their great names, like Emily Pankhurst, and their third for publicity, and their weekly note newspaper with some very good cartoons. And here we are. March the 24th, and here's John Burns, MP for Battersea, just down river a bit, the working class member of the Liberal Cabinet and responsible for administering the census. On one hand, he's standing up wearing his courtly regalia and empirically denying rather modest looking Edwardian woman the vote. On the other hand, as honest working man John, He's on his knee imploring her to fill in her census form and provide the data. So again, we come back to the arguments about democracy. Democracy for people, providing welfare, or democracy by people, 
uh, when it was citizens that belonged. And in meeting halls up and down the country and local newspaper correspondence columns, these arguments were aired. And in the book, I look at them all around uh, England as census night looms, Sunday night, the 2nd of April, 1911. How would women respond? Would they respond to the incitement to boycotts and the suffragettes, or would they respond to the government requirement to comply with the census uh, requirement? Well, thanks to the wonderful National Archives, here, just right here, from January 2009, uh, we've been able to look we able to look um, electronically on the website uh, to the schedule. It was released early due to a, thanks to a freedom of information request. And I went, I came here, they were released, I think it was something like the 9th of January. It was quite early, it was within the first 10 days of January, 2009. And I came with suffrage uh, historian and colleague Elizabeth Crawford, and we came within a couple of days even though it meant my coming down from Yorkshire. We just had to see what, what this was, what was going on here. And it was much easier to come to Kew um, and look here. And there was a wonderful reception in where you just come in with, do you want to find about your, uh, about your ancestor at um, the 19th century? Follow these footsteps, little footsteps in the carpet. I don't know if you remember Vicky, all the way up. And there was everybody wearing special uniforms. And you couldn't possibly get lost, however, Phobia, you were, they were there to help you. Elizabeth and I were looking for suffragettes who had boycotted. And this isn't necessarily the first schedule we've found, but it's probably the best known. Here is Emmeline Wilding Davison. She's not very well known, but she's the most celebrated of the evaders because she had wiggled her way in, yes, wiggled her way in, uh, into a cupboard in the House of Commons. And um, she was in a broom cupboard in the House of Commons. And uh, Tony Benn, uh, before he, within about 10 years before he died, put up a little blue plaque on his cupboard. And she is a lone boycotter. And her uh, schedule is signed by Clark of Work. Um, so very unusual, a lone boycotter who caught the newspaper headline. Not far away in central London, Roller skating, so very fashionable then. Can you read that notice just up there? Fast skating, strictly prohibited, strictly prohibited. Um, so here is a mass evasion in London at the Old Witch, which was then had its own roller skating rink. Very, very fashionable. Um, we know that 500 women and 70 men, so 570 evaders, were there listening to some suffragette actors declaiming Folks women poetry. Let's leave London for a minute and go to Manchester. Manchester Census Lodge, South Manchester, the largest of mass evasion outside London. In this house, 156 women and 52 men. Um, and then there's an overstall house around the corner because a Manchester mansion can only hold so many. Um, so there were 296 evaders just in this little corner of Manchester. And I think they just look exhausted. She's still holding her hat. They are just absolutely so tired. They've stayed up to midnight listening to speeches. I report some of those speeches, they're very stirring, in the book, and they just collapse and play rugs 
and they're, they're just absolutely exhausted. Um, so I think we need to leave central London, leave Manchester, and come back to here. And we're up at the top of that map, um, just upriver from Westminster. So how did local suffragettes around Kew and Richmond respond? Well, let's just remind ourselves the three possible ways that one could respond. You could comply with the Census Act requirements. You could have your census form filled in. And of course, the vast majority of the population of England did, um, as did the vast majority of suffragists in the National Union, the London Society following Mrs. Fawcett. They didn't believe in militancy. They, they believed in showing a dignified response to this and providing the government with information that would improve the lives of women and children in the future. You could comply. You could evade, hide from the enumerator, as Emily Wilde in Davidson tried to do in her cupboard, or the skaters or the Manchester um, suffragettes did. They could evade, no names, nobody knew how many. Or, thirdly, more daringly, you could resist. That is, you remained at home and you confronted the census enumerator who would come to your house to collect your schedule on Monday. You could refuse, you could eyeball him, and it would be a him, you'd eyeball him. And you'd refuse to give him any information. You'd confront him and see him out. And that's exactly what Princess Sophia did. The registrar, and the registrar is obviously the boss of the enumerator, so it's gone up, she's a princess, she's in Hampton Court, this is big, bigger stuff. So best information available, so it's the register on the bottom right-hand corner. Um, and this obviously isn't um, you know, a, a full census that she's resisting. And I'm just going to read her statement, which is in the book, um, as are as many of the statements we could include. She's about 34 years old. She's living at Faraday House, Hampton Court. She's a census night resistor, and her statement reads, no vote, no census. As women do not count, they refuse to be counted. And I have a conscientious objection to filling up this form. So, very little information from Princess Sophia. Let's come back down the river uh, to Hughes. Um, here is 25 um, West Park Road. Anyone come from the Q-Tube station or station here? Um, when you have walked past uh, up to Casey Household and might look out for 20, number 25 when you walk back, it's not too snowy. Um, only one line filled in. Uh, her father, he's recorded, he's a surgeon, a physician and surgeon, living in eight rooms and he signed it. So his wife, who we know of, is probably evading as well. He notes he's been married for 31 years. He's had Four children, she's had four children born alive and one has died. Eight rooms, so probably one or maybe two domestic servants to keep clean and light the fires for and cook um, in the eight rooms. So we can be absolutely certain that Eileen Casey, as a WSPU Pankhurst suffragette, is evading. Um, where is she? Where's she gone? How can we find out? And then not far away, and this is the one house 
image I'm going to show you because so many of them are very similar. Very dignified, red brick, three-storey, substantial, respectable, outer suburb, um, professional middle-class house. And um, Mr. Clayton is a chemist. And uh, he seems to evade, though he does mm -hmm. sign his schedule. And he puts on quite a long statement. And I'm just going to read it because I don't think anybody can read those words, can they? Mm -hmm. No, sorry. Um, so here we are in mm -hmm. Surrey, in Kew. And this is Edwin Clayton. He's about 52 years old. And the statement is, and I can read it here, this house was entirely shut up and the family away on the night and morning above mentioned, Sunday and Monday, therefore, one, no one passed the night of Sunday the 2nd of April 1911 in this dwelling, and two, no one arrived in the dwelling on the morning of Monday the 3rd of April 1911. And he adds, the family left the house as a protest against the exclusion of women from the parliamentary franchise. And Edwin is a member of the Men's League for Women's Suffrage. His wife and wife Clara and daughter Hilda belong to the WSCU Pankhurst and the Church League for Women's Suffrage. And he's made a, a very sort of uncompromising statement, has he? And you can see that he's a scientist and wants to get it right, uh, wants to be accurate, but no doubt at all he's not there. So who else evades? Well, one particular memorable observer from Census tonight, and he's in central London, was suffrage journalist called Henry Nevinson. Have you come across him at all? Henry Nevinson, wonderful writer. He'd been in Trafalgar Square, and then he moved onto the Old Bridge, um, and then onto the skating rink. And he wrote a wonderful report in the Votes Women, the WSCU Votes Women. And I'm just going to read it again because it just comes up something really rather nicely. So he's at mid midnight in Trafalgar Square on Christmas night. At 12.20, they, the police, began to request us to pass away as though we were but shadows of a shade. So we passed away along the strand. But before we went, I noticed three gypsy caravans passing in the opposite direction. They were driven by women who whispered me the names of woodland regions not very far off in Surrey. They vanished silently down the road. Where were they going, these women, in their gypsy caravans? Well, luckily, we can now know, thanks to the National Archives uh, schedule, which we can see, but also we can see a photograph, which appeared in one of the growing number of popular, we call them red top, wouldn't we, but they're not quite, they're popular papers, photographs on the front page, this is Tuesday, and you can see here there are 10 chilly women evaders. You can see they look a bit nippy because one of them's even put a scarf around her hat, which you wouldn't normally do. Um, and it's 2.30 and they're just before retiring and they're on Wimbledon Common. So that's a couple of miles, is it? About a couple of miles. And Nevinson, eagle-eyed journalist, has sighted them nearly two hours earlier. Yeah. 
So census nights gives us an opportunity to peer into everyone's letterboxes, into the heart of domestic interiors and throws up some surprises. Caravans on Wimbledon Common, but also another more domestic, private, intimate example, uh, Downriver in Kensington. Um, not a fairly conventional schedule at face value, you've signed it, Mr. Maud. Um, so we might notice the crossing out on the second line. Here is the house of 38-year-old Eleonora Maud, wife of a much older African explorer and mining magnate, now turned prosperous businessman. Her name is crossed through um, and added below, probably by the enumerator, is um, wife away, you can just see. Um, but then her husband, uh, her husband intercepted the schedule and in red pen, and I don't think any, you can see wife away, but underneath this cropped red writing, you can't see, but I've cordered it and read it in her hands Elizabeth, and I can read it to you, and I think I'd like to share it with you. This is Mr. Morden's statement. And he's crossed. It's everywhere, green barry, but it's red ink. My husband, unfortunately being a suffragette, put a pen through her name, but it must stand as correct. It being an equivocation to say she is away, she being always resident here, and is only attempted by a silly subterfuge to defeat the object of the census to which, as head of the family, I object, E. A. Morn. <laughs> there we see, there we've given a rare insight into marital discord, political marital discord. The husband is controlling the census pen, he's writing about his wife. Um, married, she's been married for 21 years, five children born, five children still alive, but she has resisted. And we know they live in Edith Road, and I, I will tell you that that's a little nest of suffragettes. So, who had his wife met while she'd been out shopping? Who whispered in her ear? Other local suffragettes, the story is slightly less dramatic. Um, here's Vera Slade again. At Pagoda Avenue in Kew, very near the Claytons, it isn't far away at all. Uh, she's aged uh, 25, we can see on the fourth line down. She's active suffragette in the WSPU, working with the Panthers. So, why has she complied? The WSPU has implored her to boycott the census. Why has a young 25 year old woman in a middle class, upper middle class, comfortable house in Kew? She's a co-secretary of the local WSU suffrage branch um, in Richmond. Why has she complied? Her father's a retired timber merchant. You can see there's no money problems. The £5 fine isn't, if you boycott the census, isn't going to be a real deterrent to her. Is it family pressure? And there's one servant, four unmarried daughters. Is the father saying, you're all staying here? Or the daughter saying, look, she can't go. We've all got to stay here. Please don't go, Vera. What is it? I ask you to make up your mind. What persuaded Vera, as a suffragette, an active suffragette, to uh, comply with the censor? I haven't come across any evidence as yet. And finally, I want to return to our diversity theme and to look not so much at an Indian princess uh, in a grace and favour house at Huntington Court, but at social class. Because most of the schedules we've looked at so far 
are either professional middle class or upper middle class and in fact Indian royalty. You can tell the number of rooms, the number of domestic servants. But if we look beyond Kew and Richmond and we look at elsewhere in England, we'll find other experiences. Um, and I didn't want to go too far away, so I've gone to Thatcham in Berkshire, which is broadly just sort of up, up the Thames Valley a little bit. And let's look at another kind of census schedule. Fanny Ashman, Broad Street, um, Berkshire. She's in the Women's Freedom League, so she's a suffragette, fairly active. She's 52 years old and she's a widow. On census night she complied, though her son finds it. She's a widow. She's had 14 children born alive. You can just see it there, it's crossed through. Of whom 11 are still living and three have died. Of her family members, there are six daughters and two sons. So eight of her 11 surviving children uh, live with her. So there's nine people squashed into eight rooms. Eight rooms down there, nine people here. So we can see immediately that here is an instance of the kind of overcrowding, domestic congestion that the Liberal government was worried about. And it was trying to find ways to correlate that number of child deaths with occupation and with overcrowding and congestion at home. And we can see their occupations. Um, you can see their very typical working class occupations. For example, one's a boot repairer, one's a school teacher, one's a dressmaker. Dressmakers are next to nothing. So a fairly typical working class household in the 1911 census. And it was for such families as Fanny Ashman that the Liberal government, and particularly Lloyd George, was championing their health and welfare reforms, and particularly the National Insurance Bill, um, against uh, fierce opposition, particularly from vested interests in the medical establishment and the House of Lords. So how many other suffragettes were there, like Fanny Ashman, who, for reasons that might do with social class or not being able to risk being liable for a five-pound fine, decided to comply come census night? Well, in Manchester, you might have come across uh, suffragettes like Hannah Mitchell or Jenny Baines, both working-class suffragettes in the Manchester area. They both complied, and I tell their stories a bit in the book, and ask why they complied. Was it to provide the census data for the Liberal government? Was it the fear of a five-pound fine? Was it because the conciliation bill would enfranchise so few women? What was it? How much was social class or women's lack of financial independence a factor? Let's come to that in the discussion. And that takes us back to uh, the broader political context and back to spring 1911 and particularly these last couple of lines. Um, the conciliation bill so very narrow and George, Lord George propelling his national insurance bill against all the opposition. And remind ourselves of the WSPU cartoon which evokes John Burns at one point denying, empirically denying women the vote and then on his knee, uh, bended knee, begging, imploring her to comply with the census. What did democracy mean? Was it democracy for people like her, or democracy by her, her citizenship demand? 
And so finally, just before we end, who, this is the key question really, who won the battle for the 1911 census? Was it John Burns and Asquith's Liberal government? Well, John Burns and the government certainly thought so. John Burns could stand up in the House of Commons on Wednesday, so that's three days later, and he was asked the question, as he knew he was going to, about how effective and accurate the census had been. And this is his um, response. He asked the question about how accurate the statistics were going to be for the census. And B, Burns, as minister responsible, offers this unperturbed ministerial reply. See what you make of it. I do not appreciate that the suffragette agitation against the census will have any appreciable effect upon the accuracy of the statistics of population. Cheers, Norway MPs. Cheers. Mm -hmm. According to the information that has reached me to the present, which is from the registrar and are then the enumerators, the number of individuals who have evaded being enumerated is altogether negligible. Altogether negligible. More cheers. Um, so has the government won, so it's negligible, or has the suffragettes won? And here is the uh, suffragette bans again. Had the suffragettes won the battle for the census? Well, in the days immediately after the census night, the popular press, and it wasn't just the daily sketch, it was a lot of other papers, highlighted the daring of the suffragettes who boycotted. They, some of them had that whole front page covered with photographs of slumbering suffragettes or suffragettes making speeches or here in the caravans on um, Wimbledon Common. Um, they got, the suffragettes won the headline and also not a single suffragette was fined. The law said John Burns uh, could have fined every suffragette who refused to comply with the census five pounds. They were waiting, 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 Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and when nothing came, no summons came, all the suffragettes heaved a great sigh of relief and just said, we've won, uh, that John Burns has climbed down, there's not a single arrest or a single summons. So, who could claim victory? Uh, was it Burns, because the number of evaders was altogether negligible, as he said in the House of Commons, or could the suffragettes claim victory for no arrest? No five-pound fines, despite mass breaking the law and wonderful publicity, uh, both then and now, because the census boycotters caught the public imagination both in 1911 and in 2009 when the National Archives released the census. One of the things that really caught people's imagination, got the headlines, was here are the suffragettes. You can see them on the census uh, schedules but some of them boycotted. So I want to end with two questions to you. What do you think about who won the battle of the census? Uh, what kind of democracy um, was, was most persuasive? And what would you have done? Well, thank you very much for, for listening. This podcast is copyrighted to the National Archives. All rights reserved. <laughs>